Hey, this is Glenn Thrush. And welcome to Politico's Off Message Podcast, a special midweek edition uh, with Dr. Ben Carson. It has been a hell of a long month. Uh, This is the part of the cycle I personally hate every four years, when the Republicans and Democrats finish up with the first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and then we swing into this, uh, like, dozens of states that we're going to see in the SEC primaries, followed by Super Tuesday. It's a lot of ground to cover uh, as a reporter, but I don't know if some of you know this. Some of you may know. Some of you have read my tweets or stories. I am a, uh, a really bad flyer, and March is the time in a presidential campaign when the candidates start doing these three- and four-state swings, uh, shooting around from state to state, and I really, really hate them. We're talking about charter flights, where the pilots will fly through any kind of weather. My usual remedy for this is a double gin and tonic, a double tankery and tonic, to be specific, and I'll take them even at 6 a.m. when I'm taking a flight, but you can't really do three or four of those in the middle of a workday. So I'm thinking maybe of renting a bus if Politico uh, will pay for it like John Madden used to use to shuttle between NFL games. Well, I'm not sure Dr. Carson is all that crazy about March either. He's really on the brink. And after a really poor showing in South Carolina where he drew fewer votes than Jeb Bush, who dropped out, uh, he is starting to question whether or not he's going to stay in this race. And there are a lot of Republicans who think he should drop out for the sake of the party. Uh, The interview you're about to hear took place in Carson's hotel a few hours before the voting in South Carolina ended, Uh, and I wanted to talk less about politics than about race, something which is just sort of saturated in the soil of South Carolina and something that Carson himself has been addressing in recent rallies. This was one of the hardest, uh, most frustrating, but also most interesting interviews I've ever done. Carson has this uh, odd habit of closing his eyes when you're asking him a tough question and sort of trying to formulate the answer. And he told me uh, at the beginning of the interview that he's trying to be less controversial, controversial so he doesn't kind of have a race to the bottom with Donald Trump. Yet he became really animated when I asked him directly about racism. And here's what I found kind of confusing. He talked freely about the racism he'd personally experienced as a kid growing up in Detroit, and he talked also about its role in South Carolina as he toured the state. But every time I tried to nail down an answer about the role race played now in the 2016 campaign among his fellow Republicans, he defaulted to a stock answer about progressives demonizing him as a black conservative. That was until I mentioned the name Barack Obama. Then things got really interesting. And now for just a little bit of business. Uh, As always, subscribe to the Off Message podcast on iTunes and rate us. Uh, And as usual, send ideas for podcasts or criticism or compliments uh, to gthrush at politico.com. And without further ado, here's Ben Carson. Uh, So tell me, I'm always, I covered the 2008 race between Obama and Clinton here. And one of the things, uh, I've covered the South. One of my first jobs was at the Birmingham Post-Herald in Alabama. I covered poverty in the rural Black Belt area. And one of the things that is most striking about South Carolina, and it's true in a lot of states, Mm -hmm. are sort of the racial disparities in general, and also kind of the racial polarization in the state. Talk a little bit about that. Obviously, you you know, this reflects on some of the similarities with what you dealt with in your childhood, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I've uh, had a chance to to get my message out into the black community, because I, I want people to understand that it's not necessary to stay in a state of dependency. 
And, you know, a lot of the policies that have been pushed for the last several decades are not policies that lead to prosperity. Uh, they're policies that lead to broken families. Um, single parent homes are much more likely to be poverty stricken homes. Uh, so, you know, as a society, we really need to start thinking how do we encourage the development of strong families rather than how do we destroy strong families? Uh, and that's a message that I've been putting out there. Not a lot of candidates on that stage have been talking about these sorts of, of things. Do you think that's a mistake? Why do you think you, this is not something you hear Trump say, talk about? Or you hear Jeb talk about it a little bit. Why do you think you are, are sort of one of the few ones there who's discussing that stuff? Because I lived it. <laughs> I grew up that way. And, you know, I recognize what tends to lead people to success and what tends to lead people in a position of dependency. And I'm also trying to get America as a whole to recognize that the fewer people we have who are undeveloped, the fewer people that we have to pull along. Right. And if those people become part of the fabric and strength of the country, it strengthens the country. And also, you know, I've been talking about education and how that is a critical part of our national security recognizing that between the ages of 17 and 24, 71% of applicants to the military are rejected for either mental, physical, or educational reasons, educational being by far the biggest. And so you can, it's not hard to see how that can impact our national security if we don't do better. Well, you have an entirely unique perspective on these issues than other than a lot of Republicans. I mean, you're very much in the minority in the Republican Party on this. In terms of, uh, we've seen major party, uh, major party candidates who have been African American before. But talk a little bit for me about what is it like in 2016, perhaps compared to previous generations of of, of African American candidates, even Herman Cain. Um, what what has that experience been like, and has have there been any surprises? Well, first of all, you know, I don't find any particular uh, problem being an African-American in the Republican Party. Uh, the people, I, I know that in the progressive uh, side of things, they like to say that the Republicans are racist. I, I know that. I, I haven't experienced that. You've never, and you've never sort of experienced being treated differently by Republican? Not at all. Not, not in the slightest. Maybe I'm just very non-observant. <laughs> maybe I think maybe it's not the color of, of skin but the thickness of it right uh, well, it could be I you know I don't go around looking for things and you have to understand that whatever you think is going on is probably what you're going to see but so but so if, if if somebody told you that you're about to meet somebody and they're really a mass murderer and they're just looking for an opportunity to kill you and you probably, everything they say, you're going to say, uh-huh, I see what he's trying to do. Or if they told you the very same person really loves everybody and is looking for a way to enhance them, and the very same thing, you'll right. say, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. So you, think, so you think these criticisms by progressives, principally the MSNBCs and all those uh, folks, uh, and even some people sort of close to Obama, you think the criticisms that some of the, 
some of the critiques of the White House and the Obama in general were rooted in racism. Do you think there's any justification in that at all? Very low. You have to recognize that what President Obama represents is an, an ideology that is antithetical to the ideology of most people in the Republican Party. And it, I don't think it has anything to do with race. I mean, Hillary represents that kind of ideology also. Uh, and they'll say it's because she's a woman. I mean, any guy who represents that kind of ideology is going to evoke exactly the same types of criticism. The one thing I will say is somewhat contrary to my experience, just having gone out and covered voters. You know, occasionally people will say intemperate things. Uh, and, you know, maybe maybe I'm the one looking for the serial killer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Could well be. Oh, well, I do work for political. But, but, but remember now, you know, I've I've been around for... 64 years. You know, I've had a chance to see what real racism is. When was the last experience that you personally had with what you would consider to be real racism in your life? Uh, well, you don't have to go too far. Uh, I think the way that I'm treated, you know, by the left is racism. Really? Yeah, because they assume because you're black, you have to think a certain way. And if you don't think that way, you're Uncle Tom, you're worthy of every horrible epithet they can come up with. Um, whereas, if I weren't black, then I would just be a Republican. And, and, but, but you yourself were talking just now about your interest in these issues because you have a background and a childhood. And I have to tell you, I have twin sons. Your book, uh, your memoir of your early life, it was a huge hit for them. They saw the show in, in Baltimore. Uh, I live in Kensington. And, and, uh, but that's a big part of who you are, right? I mean, isn't that sort of an interesting dichotomy? You're talking about these issues of race, and, and, you, and you feel that, that you know, this is not something that is impinging upon you day to day in the Republican Party, but yet you are also bringing your experience to bear in terms of the programs that you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Sort of explain that to me. Like, do you feel like you are? Do you feel like your race allows you to kind of lead your party in a slightly different direction? Well, I mean, I hope that it's not so much my race as it is my experience. Uh, you know, I've had an opportunity to live at every level in our society, from the bottom one percent to the top one percent. Uh, experience all kinds of different jobs, uh, so I can identify with a vast number of people in America. Uh, and I'd hope that that would be a relevant experience and, and give me credibility as I talk about the kinds of things that we have to do to develop all of our people. Um, and to me, the, the issues that I talk about are not race-specific. But when I talk about education, I talk about the fact that we live in the information age, the technological age, and we only have 330 million people. And we're going to have to compete with China with 1.4 billion, India with 1.1 billion. We can't afford to have 20 plus percent of our people not finishing high school. We can't afford to have 5 percent of the world's population and 25 percent of the inmates. We, we simply can't afford it. There, there's no way you can parse it to make, to justify that. But when you look at a, a news story like Flint, have you been following what's going on in Flint? It's got to uh -huh. be resonant for you because I mean, that's your neck of the woods, right? Yeah, well, I mean, but uh, what happened in Flint uh, is a failure of people at multiple levels, from the local level to the national level. 
And what we need to do is dissect that situation, analyze it very carefully, and take the lessons from it that will never allow that to happen again. But at the same time, it is absolutely essential that we make those people whole. But, but you don't think that, that, that there was a certain historical and institutional racism that led to, those, to that outcome? Like, you know, well, they let the pipes rot. Well, let me put it this yeah. way. If that were going on in an affluent black community, it would not have, it would have not gone on. Do you think it's a combination of the race and the and the power and the influence? Right. You know. You sound what, like Bernie Sanders. By the way, I'm, I'm, I, I don't. This is not an insult, <laughs> but you do sound like Bernie Sanders. That's because this is the argument that Hillary and Bernie are having right now, right? She's uh, arguing. You could you could say perhaps you know I've heard Republicans say cynically uh, that uh, it, this stuff is more race related, and Bernie's been arguing that there's more of an income component combined. So you kind of fall on the Bernie side of that argument. Well, a, a lot of things that people classify as racism is classism. And believe me, there's a lot of classism in our society. And if people of a certain race happen to fall into a lower class, then they get the brunt of it. Um, I, I will throw one last question on this, on this line. You said something uh, recently. You were at the historically uh, uh, black, con uh, black college, college here in Orangeburg. Uh, and you mentioned uh, that you thought some of these attacks on you were attempts to sort of divide. Uh, and you used, and I think you used the analogy of sort of field slaves versus house slaves. Yes. I had not heard you use, <laughs> use that before. I've we, used it before. You have used it before. Mm -hmm. Is it being here that sort of inspired that? Tell me a little bit about, tease that out for no, me. No, I've, I've used it many times over the years. Uh, as you know, uh, in many parts of the South, there were more slaves than there were slave owners. The slave owners were very concerned about uprising. Right. And uh, so in, in order to make sure they uh, didn't have that, they created division amongst the slaves. And uh, I, when I look at the policies that have been espoused by so-called compassionate people uh, that have done nothing but keep people in a dependent situation, of course those people are not interested in those people coming out of that dependency. And uh, so to create divisions between them and the people who know how to get out of a state of dependency is something that they would do. So there were, therefore, they demonize, you know, people like me. And they say, you know, he's evil, he's an Uncle Tom. Uh, do you get, I mean, do you sort of get that in your day-to-day Granted, you're sort of in this bubble now, and, and at some, you know, either way this resolves, you're either going to be in a bigger bubble or no bubble at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, did, did you get, have you gotten that in your day-to-day -day life when you'd go out to a restaurant or something? Do people, African-Americans, come up to you and say those sorts of things? Uh, not in a restaurant, but, uh, but certainly in, in various settings, and sometimes when question and answer periods come up, uh, I get it. And I like to get the question because then I have an opportunity to explain. Interesting. And when people have an opportunity to actually hear what I'm saying, it very frequently changes their mind because they've been fed propaganda. And you have an opportunity to demonstrate that what you're talking about is something that is truly helpful. You've spoken with President Obama over the years, right? I would presume. Uh, no. You've never really talked with him. Yeah, I spoke with him after the prayer breakfast briefly on stage. That's the last time I spoke to him. What did you guys talk about? He just said, uh, thank you for coming. That was about it? He didn't say he enjoyed the speech. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think he enjoyed the speech, right? But, 
isn't it? Are you curious at all about what his experience was like? I mean, you, you, did you when he was elected? Which, which experience? The experience of being elected. Let's just let's just stop it at January twentieth, two thousand and nine. Right? Um, did that was that significant for you as somebody who sat and watched that? I was there. I was in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a pretty interesting moment in American history. Right? Um, did you derive any uh, joy out of that? Any sense of pride? How did you sort of feel? How did you process that? You know, I did not, I mean, I, like most Americans, I was proud that we broke the color barrier when he was elected. Uh, but I also recognized that his experience and my experience are night and day different. He didn't grow up like I grew up by any stretch of That's the right. imagination. That's right. Not even close. Uh, he was an African-American as opposed to an African-American. An African-American. Uh, he was... You know, raised white, uh, many of his formative years were spent in Indonesia. So for him to, you know, claim that, you know, he identifies with the experience of black Americans, I think is a bit of a stretch. That's interesting. And then, uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, this race. I mean, one of your frustrations, and it's one of my frustrations when I'm watching these debates, you know, I think it's too much Trump and I think it's too much of these other folks. Yeah. Um, you have, and there was a couple of debates ago, you did something very clever where somebody had said the word doctor, <laughs> you know, uh, how, and, and they, you use that as a justification <laughs> for jumping in. Uh, how tough has it been to kind of watch this process and tell me, do you think it's had a materially negative impact on your campaign? Well, it has been difficult uh, because this is more like the Roman Colosseum, and everybody wants to see the blood and gore. And if, if you're not going to participate in the blood and gore, they don't really want to hear from you. Uh, so they have a tendency to ignore me, uh, and I have a difficult time getting heard uh, in that setting. Uh, you know, what happened this past week with the CNN forum, now, I love that situation because you actually get to talk and, and tell people what you believe about it's a different situation you know they ought to take if they were really interested and in who the candidates were and not just interested in a fight that's the forum that they would use oh i think they're interested in a fight oh no there's no question they're interested <laughs> in a fight yeah. but you're not listen i mean you know if you read again you read your biography you are not a uh, you are not a low energy person. You are not somebody who's no clearly want. not. So, have you have you thought just from you know the political process changes people doesn't change people but it changes the way they comport themselves. Have you ever thought of let's just put some adrenaline in here and hike up the volume or are you going to go with what you've got? I'm pretty much going to be who I am. Uh, you know, a lot of people said uh, you should try to be more like Trump. You should be more. Um, then I wouldn't be me. I, I am who I am, and quite frankly, as a pediatric neurosurgeon, you know, when you're deep in somebody's brain and uh, a blood vessel pops, if you panic, the patient's dead. You have to be very calm. You have to keep every, everybody else very calm, and you'll generally find that neurosurgeons are calm people. Now, you are very calm. I don't know if you've seen the Saturday Night Live impersonation of you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of that, by the way? Uh, I don't watch Saturday Night Live. I don't really pay any attention to it. But I am honored by the fact that I'm the first person in history to have four separate segments on one Saturday Night Is Live. Is that true? Yeah. When? When was that? Uh, that was after 
you know, I made the comment about homosexuals in prison. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have, so that calm is something that was an occupational, were you always this way or was it something no. you developed? No, uh, as a child, you know, I had a very bad temper and uh, sometimes got me into a lot of trouble, uh, which of course Saturday Night Live mocked that right. one too, but uh, it's okay. Uh, because I can't understand the kind of thing that happened in my life where God changes you. Um, and it was, you know, after the stabbing incident, I locked myself in the bathroom for three hours thinking about my life, recognizing that I would never become a physician with that kind of a temper. And um, so it is a process. So is it an ongoing? I'm, I'm fascinated by this because I have a terrible temper too. You should, I, I would never urge you to drive in the passenger seat. When I'm behind the wheel, particularly in New York City or Washington, but um, so is it an ongoing process you have? Process you have inside your head of calming yourself, or is it no. automatic at this point in time? Uh, now, what happened that day as I started reading the Book of Proverbs and all those verses about anger, and I prayed, and I came to an understanding that to lash out at somebody was not a sign of strength; it was a sign of weakness. It meant that you could be manipulated. And I also came to understand if you're always angry, you're selfish. Because it's always about me, my, and I. Somebody did this to me, they took my thing, I want this. And if you learn to step out of the center of the equation, you'll never get angry. That was the last day that I ever had an angry outburst. So do you feel, I mean, does that, do you get angry? Are you, uh, like, like most of us do? I generally don't. You know, if, if, if I'm, you know, working with a very obnoxious person... <laughs> You know, I just say, that used to be a cute little baby. I wonder what happened to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, whatever, you know, uh, I mean, that is, a ch that is a challenge for a lot of people. So, so in the course of this campaign, um, do you feel, like, so, this is a question I asked Jeb, and he said no, but I'll ask you, do you feel like you've changed during the course of the campaign? Has anything happened that... Oh, yes. Tell me... Uh, yes, I've changed. Um, I used to be... Uh, much more free with my lip service than I am now. Because I came to understand that when you say certain things, that people can't actually hear you anymore. All they hear are those things that you said. So I've learned, you know, to tone it down a little bit and uh, so that people can actually hear what I'm saying. So that's an adjustment that you've made consciously. That's, that's a conscious adjustment. So making sort of making less news with saying stuff so that your the texture of what you want to say right. is actually heard. Because my uh, my goal was not to make news, but rather to get out, you know, policies and uh, impressions of how we solve our problems. Do you think this? Pro everyone's talking about how this process is kind of broken down. Do you think? And obviously, you hadn't participated in it before, so you don't have any frame of reference apart from what you've yes, seen. Yes, I do. I've followed it very carefully over the years. What do you? Th I mean, what do you think of the way that this is going? I mean, do you think that this is a? Do you think your party has a process right now in place that will allow the best person to be elected president? Uh, no, uh, but I think it's going to work out anyway. <laughs> Because you I, are a man of faith. I am. <laughs> but, but I actually believe that the people are actually beginning to see through all of this. They're starting to see that they're being manipulated. And uh, I, I hear them all the time when I'm out there. I, I, I think they're waking up in droves. And 
to know, what that, I mean to what reality and who to, and who to, are they to serving? the reality that the the media and the political class is trying to manipulate them uh, and that they need to learn how to think for themselves they need to do their own investigations they need to read about the policies of the candidates recognizing that our nation is on the precipice and uh, if 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 we continue down this path there are multiple different mechanisms that can destroy us. I think a lot of people know that. That's one of the reasons that, you know, they've been so willing to overlook things that they normally wouldn't overlook in a candidate because they're frightened. When people... You, you're talking, I, I presume you're talking about Trump to some extent. Uh, to a large degree. Yeah. But when, when people are frightened, they have a tendency to make poor decisions. And I think as time goes on and people began to look very carefully uh, at what each person is saying and what each person uh, has demonstrated throughout their lives, I think you're going to start seeing a shift. And I think you may start seeing that shift tonight. Uh, so, some people have said, um, and I interviewed the Reverend Al Sharpton the other day, and I'm, I'm uh, be interested in you listening to it and, and getting your feedback on it. But um, uh, some people have said that Trump is a racist. Um, do you, th as somebody who has dealt with racism in your life over the course of in many different environments, do you think that that's an accurate assessment of him? Um, I have not witnessed anything that would make me say that about him. Do you think there's any, do you like his tone on the topic? Do you think that's uh, no, important? No, that's not the tone that I would use. Absolutely not. What it, would you, if he were sitting here and you were to tell him what you, how you wanted, or what would make you feel more comfortable in the way that he addressed it, what would you say to him? I would say, be yourself so that people can determine who you are. And I'll be myself and they'll be able to determine who I am. Um, so in terms of your, uh, some interesting things have been going on <laughs> in the actual campaign. Um, obviously, we're waiting for this result in South Carolina. Right. Um, you have said, and you guys are doing, I mean, the difference between you and sort of the Jeb Bushes of the world, hey, you're, you're holding steadier in the national polls, um, but you've also been much more consistent in terms of the fundraising. Um, you, how long do you plan on continuing? It seems that you have the capacity to do so. Well, I'm not, I don't have any immediate plans of cessation. I, my plans are that we will continue to rise in the national polls, uh, and that we will become very, very competitive, and uh, that we will do extraordinarily well in the end. Um, in terms of this, um, uh, obviously there was this issue in Iowa with, with uh, Cruz. Um, you made it very clear on the debate stage that this was something that you did not appreciate. Uh, you, I've heard recently you've accepted his apology. I mean, how do you feel about that in general? Not, not specifically necessarily right. to Cruz, but like, how do you, what do you think it says about the process and why are people doing that kind of thing? Well, uh, obviously, you know, as a Christian, I do accept his apology. Uh, but, you know, God forgives us uh, when we sin. And, uh, but he doesn't remove the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you put that. So, you know, that's perhaps where we have a bit of a disagreement. What are the consequences? Uh, well, uh, let me just put it uh, in, a, in a sense that you can easily relate to. Uh, my campaign was not running smoothly. 
there were a lot of people who were not doing the right things. Uh, and, you know, I had to investigate it for myself. I had to take time out and just do a deep dive and figure out what was going on. But having figured that out, I had to make some pretty big changes. Um, and, you know, by the same token, if there are things going on in your campaign that you don't agree with, you don't just leave that there. Now, if, in fact, he agrees, if, if Senator Cruz agrees with all this stuff, then there's no reason for him to change anything. Well, he's had more experience in politics than you have, right? So I, I hope so, because I'm never going to be a politician. Do you think he's a politician? Yes. Do you think that the way he dealt with this is a politician's way of dealing with it? And do you, do you I mean, you say you accept his apology. Do you buy it? Um, yes, I, I, I buy that he truly believes that his people are good people and that they would never do something bad and that uh, only reason that they did something bad is because they were deceived by CNN. <laughs> but, but, but what does that say about their judgment and their ability uh, to make good decisions? You know, you've talked about faith and you've talked about uh, race a bit. Um, uh, one of the things that you said early in the campaign, which is about that you weren't, uh, you didn't think necessarily that a Muslim should be elected president. Well, I want to ask you from the perspective of somebody who, uh, comes from a race that was excluded from a lot of things for a long time and a race that was treated unfairly mm -hmm. uh, for well into your lifetime and probably, you know, well into my children's lifetime. Sure. How can you sort of square the comment you made about Muslims with your own the experience of your own people? Easily. Uh, Sharia is not compatible with our Constitution. It's as simple as that. There's just no way you can make it compatible with our Constitution. And, you know, when you're looking at the whole Islamic lifestyle, if you adhere to it, you cannot separate your religion from state. You but can't I'm, do it. I'm a secular Jew. And I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn where I grew up with kids. I grew up with kids who are from Yemen and kids who are Palestinian. And many of them were secular. And many of them had the same experience with Judaism that I had, which was much more casual than, mm -hmm. than your interaction with your faith. Um, what about those folks who are not bound by Sharia law, who are not adhering to those dictates? Why shouldn't they have an opportunity to hold the host office in the line? I never said that they couldn't. I don't have any problem with, with Muslims who accept our values and our Constitution. No problem at all. I mean, I grew up in Detroit. Right. I had lots of Muslim friends and classmates, and but you know they just like I did, just like everybody else around. Um, so it's the one. Well, that's right. Yeah, and you grew up in that era too. Yeah, but no, I don't have any problem with Muslims per se, and even Muslims who don't accept our lifestyle, uh, I don't have any problem with them. I just don't think they should be president of the United States. Um. What if someone had said that to you about being African-American? That I don't, you know, you but, but, being, but being African-American has nothing to do with being in opposition to our Constitution. So it's rooted in the Sharia, not necessarily in someone's uh, ethnicity. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. You are, uh, again, to get back to this issue that you've been talking about in terms of sort of rebuilding uh, communities. As you've gone around South Carolina, it's a really interesting state. I always get... 
a, a pretty big education going from town to town and talking with people. Right. Uh, anyone, uh, you see any kids out there, remind, remind yourself of yourself? I mean, tell me some real experiences that you've had or one real experience that you've had that's going to stick with you when you leave here. Uh, well, the experiences that stick with me the most probably relate to medicine. Really? Yeah. Uh, like I see a bunch of my patients who have grown up. Here? Here, yes. Everywhere, all across the United States, operating 15,000 people. Uh, the other night, you know, a, a very beautiful, uh, tall young woman walked up to me and said, I bet you don't know who I am. And I told her exactly who she was and what her name was. She was shocked. I operated on her, uh, I think, three times for a very complex tumor. And uh, obviously she had come through it all very well and was doing quite well. Do you think about, as you're out on the, you know, obviously this is a way different process. You've talked about that a ton. But, like, do you think about your days in surgery? I mean, is it something that you kind of, when you put your head on the pillow at night, is it something you think about? Uh, not really. Um, you know, I loved it. I, I loved being able to give people a second chance at life. And I love the way medicine used to be. I did not like what it had become. And uh, if you want to do an interesting story sometime, yeah. do, a, do a story on, on doctors who've been practicing for a while and what they think about medicine now versus in the past. Which is ultimately more stressful personally for you, operating on folks in these complex situations or doing this? Oh, there's no comparison. Uh, Operating on complex cases much more stressful. Really, much more stressful than this. I know. I don't want to harsh you mellow at all. <laughs> You've got this thing going, but was there any point in this process where you were really nervous? Because you don't seem like a guy who. I, I just say it's it's not brain surgery. <laughs> all right, <laughs> uh, Doctor Ben Carson. Thank you so much, and good luck today in South Carolina. Absolutely.